The Guardian. Welcome to this special edition of The Week in Review. I'm Jonathan Friedland. Coming up, David Schneider's unique take on the week's events. I'll be looking at Libya, voting reform and the royal wedding, but there will be some jokes. Also in the podcast, cutting the big society down to size. David Cameron's been forced to relaunch his grand plan, which asks us to take on tasks usually left to the state. In recent weeks, it's like the wheels have been dropping off the Prime Minister's big idea. One of the big society's pilot cities, Liverpool, has pulled out. And Lord Way, the Zen master of the project, which you'll remember is centred on volunteering, has cut back on his commitments, and you've got to love this, because he can't afford the time. So like John Major's Cones Hotline and Back to Basics, and perhaps even the Guardian's own Operation Clark County, could the big society soon find itself on the scrap heap of discarded political follies? This is the Week in Review from the Guardian. So it's been quite a week. Here's what the actor and comedian David Schneider has made of it. Terrible yet exciting times in the Middle East, as this week in democracy, the part of Hosni Mubarak was played by Colonel Gaddafi. His interpretation of the role has been so brutal that he's made Mubarak look like the granddad from the Werther's original commercial. It seems there's a level of brutality that defies ridicule. His first speech, holding a golf umbrella and sat in what looked like a forklift truck complaining about the weather, was only outdone in its chilling madness by that second long speech which made you think that the famous downfall scene so frequently lampooned on YouTube might actually, in retrospect, have been slightly underplayed. Our government took immediate action by dispatching a plane to rescue any British nationals stranded on the tarmac at Gatwick Airport. I have to say I'd hate to see an episode of Thunderbirds where William Hague was in charge of international rescue. At least Bahrain seemed to step back from the brink as the Crown Prince wrestled with whether he could accept the demands being made of him and actually allow the Grand Prix. It does make you wonder what compromises were being offered. Yes, you can let the race happen as long as it takes place in the central square of the capital and you replace the cars with tanks. Meanwhile, David Cameron flew out to Egypt and made a speech praising democracy, freedom and the right to choose between several different arms manufacturers. Though he did point out that, to balance things up, the arms dealers are also willing to sell cardboard placards to protesters. The Deputy Prime Minister, meanwhile, was on holiday... Rumours were he had planned to fly back on Wednesday, but William Hague was in charge of the travel arrangements. And it's surely no coincidence that in a week when Cameron and Clegg kicked off their opposing campaigns on AV, the coalition announced plans to force couples wanting to separate to try mediation first. This wasn't their only piece of advice. The government suggested it's important for newlyweds to be realistic as they might have to face a huge love deficit left behind by the previous relationship. Oh, and Nick Clegg suggests at the wedding, try your best to avoid pledges. And talking of weddings, invites went out for the royal wedding, with Prince Harry clearly having a hand in the dress code, which will be Nazi. The wedding will be a spectacular affair, with everyone craning to get a view of the happy couple. But even if you don't get to see the Beckhams, there'll be plenty of excitement. Personally, I'm looking forward to William and Kate driving away from Westminster Abbey in their car for the traditional poking by rioting students. And finally, as they say in shallower news, possibly as a lead-up to a light-hearted joke or an animal doing something funny, Michael Grade joined the campaign for Bruce Forsyth to become Sir Bruce Forsyth, a campaign I wish to fail purely and simply to avoid having to suffer the newspaper headline, Night to see you, to see you night. There, I went with the light-hearted joke, not the animal. I mean, it's a podcast. What, what could I have done with the animal? 
The Week in Review with Jonathan Friedland. David Schneider. In the studio today we have The Guardian columnist Polly Toynbee, the broadcaster and journalist and Guardian regular Miranda Sawyer, and with his take on the BS emerging from the coalition here is the presenter of The Verb on Radio 3 and the poet in residence at Barnsley Football Club, Ian McMillan. Ian, let's go with your take on the BS that is the big society. As I look up for writing these words, I see the big society unfolding outside my Barnsley window like a computer game or one of those plays they used to perform on station platforms in Soviet Russia as a train whizzed by. Gillian, from next door, carries Mr Lowe's lunch up the street on a tray and somebody gets out of a car and scoops up some poop in a poop scoop and puts it in a bag and then gets back in the car and drives away. My wife is about to take her mother to Cleethorpes for the day. Given the temperature and the biting wind, that's more of an ethical foreign policy than a big society. Still, we're all in this together. I'm sorry. I'm not normally cynical and I'm not normally given to cheap jibes, but something about the phrase the big society has been rubbing me up the wrong way since I first heard it. In my house, we've started using the big society almost as a term of mild abuse. I don't want to get all big society on you, but would you like a cup of tea? Where's my scarf gone? It's all the big society's fault. This milk's off. Big society. Sometimes it's just the phrase on its own, proving it's a piece of linguistic shorthand that's entered the language. A car drives by and splashes you. Big society. You spill your soup on your trousers. Oh, big society. Gillian walks back from Mr Lowe's. The kids on the street are playing football but refraining from kicking it when Bertha Jobling walks by on her way to the bus stop. My heart should feel warm, warmer than Cleethorpe's. But I remember a time on a train once in the terrible 1980s. It was a Sunday and I was going from Goldthorpe, a station in an old pit village, to Leeds. A woman got on with a steaming plate covered with a tea towel. She sat next to me. That smells nice, I said. I'm taking it to my mother in Thurnska, she said, naming the next station, about three minutes ride away. I do it every Sunday. I didn't know how to tell her. The train wasn't stopping at Thurnska that day. Engineering works. Next stop, Fitzwilliam. I don't know why that memory has stayed with me all those years. Maybe it's because it teaches you something profound. You can't have goodness without infrastructure. Now there's a slogan. No goodness without infrastructure. That'll look great on a placard. The baby enjoyed it. The baby certainly did enjoy it. That's quite a reaction. If you heard an extra laugh there, that belongs to Frankie, who is the daughter of Miranda, who's here taking her part, playing her part in the big society already. I mean, you heard what Ian had to say about the big society. It is a slogan open to ridicule. Did it resonate for you, Polly? Absolutely right. It's one of those political phrases which is deathly already and will become more so. I think within a year... Uh, no politician will mention those words without blenching, or at least no coalition politician, because it doesn't exist. It's not there. You did find that, didn't you, in the general election campaign? I think one cabinet minister, or now cabinet minister, Tory frontbencher, said the big society is bollocks. And that was sort of set the tone <laughs> for what was to come after us. Miranda, what does it mean to you, if anything? Well, I think what's quite interesting is that how it's caught on as a kind of phrase, well, not a phrase, two words, big society. But the other, the other thing I think about it is nobody knows what it means. So people use big society in the way that Ian was saying because they have absolutely not a clue what it means. I think especially when combined with cuts, people don't understand what that big society is meant to mean. They think, OK, we're all in it together. However, we appear to be being split apart by the actual kind of policies of the government, which is trying to bring us together. That's what I think is... We're going to come to the point about cuts later. I want to get to that. Polly, I know this is going to require an effort, but empathise as much as you can with the Tories who are thinking about the big society. What do they mean by the term? The idea is great, and all politicians know that people like and trust 
voluntary organisations, community organisations, a lot more than they like the state or politicians. So uh, underpinning it, they're trying to get some of the cred out of an enormous amount that actually goes on. We are one of the great volunteering nations. We do an amazing amount of it. No other country has 90% of its justice system delivered by volunteer magistrates, for instance. We have a huge Citizens Advice Bureau service, which in other countries would probably be done by paid people. I mean, there are just so many things going on. So it's not surprising politicians want to say we want more of that. So these things express the Tory idea, which is roles and jobs that previously we've um, associated with government should instead be done by regular people. Yes, and I, think, and I think everybody likes the idea of that. It sounds great. But uh, once you get politicians trying to use it as a cover for cuts, the sense of hypocrisy, the outrage, the indignation is overwhelming. Ian, you're nodding. Well, it is a beautiful phrase. That's what I think is interesting about it. I can imagine them sat in front of a flip chart, making it up and going, wait a minute, the big society, what a beautiful phrase. And then here we are, kind of saying, yes, that's a good idea, but the phrase isn't enough. It's like that wonderful phrase, asylum seeker. Asylum seeker, those two words, two beautiful words that go together, almost like a little haiku. Asylum, a beautiful word, seeker, a beautiful word, and yet they've been turned into a term of abuse. And that's what people like us are doing to the phrase, the big society, like when I spill my soup on my trousers. So somehow, in a bit, we will get people saying it, but they'll always have the invisible quote marks around it. Oh, that's a bit, that's very uh, big society. The air quotes. I wonder if it came about through some brainstorming session Mm. in Tory headquarters when somebody said small state and then they said well the opposite of that big society and i think it was it was it's a negative in a way it's the opposite of something let's see what the uh, word on the streets in london this week was about this term when we went out we found a mixture of confusion and contempt for this elusive part of the tories manifesto big society what does big society is uh i don't know development of a big government maybe in essence it's the devolution of power from the centre to local people to empower people to have more choice in their area or neighbourhood but in reality it's not going to work because of the cuts because of a lack of understanding about what volunteering actually means and because I don't think there is an appetite amongst people to actually run libraries they would be happy to volunteer in them but don't want the responsibility of running them it, it, it's a con, you know, it's something that's been done, voluntary sector organisations have been doing it for, you know, forever. How can you possibly expect, you know, the voluntary sector and community organisations to take over when they're not going to be, you know, left with any money at all with the massive cuts? So it's just a joke, isn't it? Well, lots of the uh, points there, some of them we've already talked about, but I thought I was struck, Miranda, by this, somebody saying we're happy to volunteer in our local library, but we don't want to run it. Well, exactly, because especially in a time of kind of austerity, I think people have less time. So you, you, I think the big problem with the idea of big society and it combined with cuts, and it's very hard for me to talk about it without being you know, combined with cuts, is I think that the government has a kind of idea that there, there is more, people have more slack than they actually have. I, th- I don't know whether that's because they have quite a lot of money themselves, I don't know. But I think that in a time of austerity, you just simply have less time. You have to work harder to earn the same amount. You don't have the time to go and, and run a library. And I also think that there's a kind of nastiness attached to the idea that the people who are actually doing the cuts is not the government, it's the local government. So they say, actually, we're not cutting the library, it's, it's your local government that says your, your, your you library has to be buck. cut. They've told the local you, authority, you're yeah, having less you money to see you that. do it. And it's, an, and it's also a fundamental uh, misunderstanding of what things like libraries for they're not just about books what they are for are for young people who have got a, a difficult home life to go and do their homework and and they're for places for where you might find out about things that for instance you could take your baby to all those kind of big society you know mm. big local society things are contained within a library and to kind of take them out 
and say, oh, they're just about books and you can get them all on Amazon anyway, is a, is a kind of misunderstanding generally, I think, of what society is. It's quite weird that the big society seems to be chopping up the actual genuine society that's Let, around. Let's say the economy was in good, rude good health. I mean, this is very abstract, hypothetical, but let, imagine they were launching this idea in an economic good times. Would we admire the idea and sympathise with it then, or is there this problem about, which we heard in the, uh, from the people on the street just then, about time? I mean, Oscar Wilde so famously said, you know, the problem with socialism is there are not enough evenings in the week. I mean, is that, is that the problem, <laughs> e- even in good times? I think it is. I think it's quite funny that when members of the Cabinet were asked themselves what volunteering they did, they were struck dumb. Uh, you know, Francis Maud, uh, I think he's that's on the right. board of a private school, and that's it. And he had to say, I'm a member of Parliament, I see everybody is very very busy and busier than they used to be and it is hard but i think if it were good times now and you had a genuinely well-intentioned government i think there would be a lot of support for giving more to voluntary organizations to do more things things that come up from the bottom where people suddenly seem to have a good idea to be doing something and they need a bit of help but it needs government money to support it to invest in it to make it happen most volunteering whether it's running a library or running a citizen's advice bureau takes a huge amount of training and it's really Mm. expensive to train up a volunteer and what's happening now is that all of those people who've been trained are going to be let go Uh, real social value disappearing so that's the disconnect between the language and what they're talking about and what actually happens, that's what makes people and so angry. And also there's that weird thing, isn't it? It doesn't take that much money to keep things going. So, you know, for instance, if you do... I mean, my mum, does, you know, as a retired teacher, of course she does volunteering. That's what, that's what those, those kind of people do. And she would help disabled people go swimming at the local swimming pool. But they cut the minibus. I mean, it's as simple as that. You just cut the money from the minibus and the whole service goes. And all those people who are very willing to volunteer can't help. And Ian, what, what about the, just the idea of volunteering? Because it's elevated by the government into a special kind of value. Do you think if the service is the same, let's say Miranda's mum helping at the swimming pool, is there something different about a local volunteer doing it than if, say, a government employee was doing it? Does it feel better for the recipient of that service if it's coming out from a volunteer, a local member of their community, than a government department? Well, I don't know Miranda's mother, but I bet she's not a trained lifeguard. <laughs> That's what the difference is, that somehow these people who are very willing and very, very keen, somehow they fall short of the professional standards that are required. They always hold up that library. They always talk about that library in that pub in North Yorkshire. Do you know what the one they're always talking about that library? It's, it's just a shelf of books. Well, just the one, isn't just, it? Yeah, there's a pub in North Yorkshire that's got a local library in it, and you go into it, and it's like, a, it's like a, that shelf of books my mum had. That's all it is, it's just, one, it's just half a dozen books, and some people come in, they have a pint, they borrow a book, and they're talking about that as a library. So although volunteering makes you feel good, it makes you have a, a nice glow around you, then it's ne- never going to replace professionalism, I'm sure. Well, let's hear from somebody who's on the front line of this. Dame Elizabeth Hoodless has just stepped down from CSV, Community Service Volunteers, the UK's largest volunteering and training charity. We asked her to explain the appeal, first of all, of the Big Society, but also why the government has got it wrong. I think the potential for the Big Society is huge. We know that over three million people want to contribute already. And I think the value of volunteers not only delivers services, but also has a stimulating effect on the professionals and after all it's the citizens who are paying for all these services and it's right that they should know through taking part that they're being run at an acceptable standard and in a proper way and an economical way. The government is doing its best but I see no sign yet of a strategy. If you look at the way cuts are being made in local authorities' income These cuts are being imposed at a rate 
at a speed and at a depth which is leading to destruction of all kinds of worthwhile big society activities around the nation. Huge cuts are being made and a number of organisations are going to be closed down completely. So opportunities for people to volunteer are shrinking fast. Mr Maud needs to bear in mind that where volunteers are being involved in working with frail older people or children or in hospitals, for example, they need to be recruited trained and CRB checked. If there's nobody to do the checks, then the volunteers won't be able to participate. And I ask him to think about that because it appears to me that the number of volunteers is shrinking fast and that is not good news for society as a whole. And nor do I think that any government is entitled to destroy the volunteering services that we've built up over a long period of time. So Polly Toynbee, Dame Elizabeth Hoodless, they're making some of the points you've been making, but also you quoted her in a column of yours. I mean, it's a very powerful attack she's making. It's not, she doesn't mince her words. How have the government, do you think, how do they react to hearing somebody who's actually the volunteering czar almost in the country speaking that way? Has it been a shock to them? Absolutely. I mean, th- 36 years she's been building up this fantastic organisation. Uh, of course, uh, you know, she's delivered an exocet right into the middle of the whole policy. How do they respond? They say, oh, well, wasn't she a Labour councillor once? This is all politically motivated, which is outrageous. I mean, attack is the best defence, and that's what they do with everything. They're attacking all the councils that are complaining, uh, and there are now more and more councils, some of them Tory and Lib Dem as well, uh, protesting that these cuts just can't happen. It can't be done. So then they find ways of attacking the particular people. It's, um, you know, quite nifty. Or they say, well, Manchester, why aren't you as good as Trafford next door, which is a Tory council? Why are you making so many cuts? Well, the answer is that Trafford's had very few cuts and Manchester's had a lot. Manchester Labour Council, Trafford's a Tory council. So you think it's very political. Let's talk about Labour a bit. I mean, Ian, isn't this a right time for Labour to be actually saying, hold on a second, this idea could belong to us, I mean, the, and remembering some of its past, the likes of William Morris, I think you've written about, and reclaiming it and breathing life into its own big society-like organisations, whether the trade unions, the old friendly societies. But well, you think back to where I live in my village, we've got an old reading room that would have been a place where working people would have gone to read. And, of course, you would never have needed arts centres if working men's clubs could have been greater organisations. So perhaps there is something to grab hold of there, but the trouble is the phrase is now so toxic, we'll have to call it something else. We, the, the, the big society, as Polly said, the big society as a phrase has had it. It's, so we've got to think of something else. And clever people at this moment, I'm sure, in labour rooms with similar kind of flip charts are thinking of another phrase. The labour are worried by that, aren't they, being on the wrong side of the good bit of the idea? Well, of mm. course, because you don't want to say we're against volunteering we think the state must do everything. It has to be both. But for volunteering to really work, the state needs to come in and underpin it, help provide the money, the training, the support, everything that makes it work. You know, the minibus that takes the volunteers to the swimming pool. That's what it's all about. I mean, one of the things I think is quite interesting about big society, I mean, obviously it's an ambiguous phrase. At the moment, it means what the Tories have kind of decided it, it means. But actually, I think that one of the things it has done is motivated a generation of young people into forming their own big society, which I think is quite interesting. There's been research done on teenagers um, that generally they have a very small life. You you know, you're a teenager, it's all about your local area, you can't drive, you can't get that far. But then actually via the internet you have a much bigger idea of the world, so you might be hearing stuff about in LA or you might be on Twitter and hearing about all these kind of things. And what's interesting about that generation is they're the generation that are now using the internet and social media to get together and protest about things, so stage protests in Topshop and, and 
and that kind of big society I find quite exciting. I was at, I was at the Topshop protest and it was great. They were going, we are the big society. Yeah, <laughs> and it was Oh, so using the slogan against... Absolutely. Yeah, and that's how exciting is that? I think that's really great. So maybe it can be reclaimed. That can happen, Ian, can't it, when you come up with a, a phrase, a set of, a, you know, a nice turn of phrase and it ends up being used absolutely right back at you. That really is how the, our people reclaim the language, isn't it? When language has been given to us something, then suddenly it comes. say, actually, no, we'll have that back. If we can <laughs> think of a new way of saying we're all in this together... As a kind of dub. Well, just some of us are more in it than others. That's the. That's, uh, that's, <laughs> that's been the problem a bit. I mean, that's been that's thrown. Yes, that's I think been that's thrown a back very, in. very difficult one, and I think it's difficult for Labour. I think that nobody can ever say that again. No. You could only say it if you were doing something hugely redistributional in, in a country that's getting more and more unequal and is about to be absolutely turbocharged unequal. I don't think any politician can say that again. Well, that was one of the appealing things initially, wasn't it? Again, before the election, the Tory message that we're all going to go into this age of austerity together, slightly undermined, some might say, by the Chancellor then going skiing in uh, cloisters. There's a big problem for this idea, and we've talked about it, but it's the uh, notion that the big society has gone hand in hand and is, being, is accused of being a cover for cuts. So let's just talk about those directly. Is that going to forever sink this idea that now forever for a generation, the notion of devolving power from government is just going to be associated with stripping back the budget? No, I don't think so. I think that if you had another government of better intent that said, look, here's a pot of money that we want to help the voluntary sector, I think people would welcome that and support it, as long as it was done in the right way and it made sense and it wasn't with any ulterior motive. I think people do want to volunteer if they can, but that's not volunteering, that's compulsory almost. Well, let's talk about the cuts themselves directly and and the impact of that. You've talked, Ian, uh, about how we seem to be going back to the 80s, uh, where kids sharing textbooks and, you know, lumps falling out the ceiling in school. Then, in that atmosphere, well, there was surely, or was there a different level of popular understanding or even support for the government making the kind of cuts they had to make then? Certainly where I live in Barnsley, there was never any kind of support for the cuts in the 80s. There was a sense that there was a very specific enemy. These days, the enemy is more diffuse. My grandson goes to a brand new school in Grimethorpe, a beautiful school. They've just opened an estate of eco-houses in Grimethorpe. So the place was starting to recover from the 80s, and now suddenly here we are getting thrashed again. And what interests me is that somehow we're, we're made to feel it's our fault, that somehow by simply existing, it's our fault, and if they take a bit of money away, then we'll feel a bit better somehow, and we don't feel better at all. The 80s formative period for people of our vintage, <laughs> yes. Miranda. We, what's your view? Does it feel, you know, you hear that in Manchester, I think your hometown, that yeah. the public loos are all going to have to shut. Yeah, the there's going to be one left and the library will going to shut on a Friday and things like that. I mean, I think Does that feel like back to the 80s for you or worse or better? Uh, yeah, I mean, I can remember Manchester in the late 70s and 80s and it was pretty grim, to be honest. And uh, as it were a lot of northern cities, I mean, OK, I wasn't really talking, you know, at that age, I was much more interested in going out. So it was very much to do with, you know, it was a kind of rough city there wasn't much to do there's just a kind of grim feeling and I think it's really hard for people to feel excited about helping others as they perhaps would naturally do I mean I think the idea of the big society of, of, of uh, contributing to all these voluntary groups and saying these are great everybody would be really happy about it if they felt supported but the problem is they don't feel supported they feel like they'll be helping and then suddenly all the money's going to be taken away and that's the problem I mean, well, is there though I, I'm just wondering if the difference is now this argument that the government makes which is we don't want to do this um, uh, we only have to do this because Labour left us in this mess. And isn't that the difference now than compared, for example, to the 80s? Yes, um, I think the government is making a lot of headway on that. All the evidence is in the polling still, although Labour's you know, creeping ahead, that people still think Labour was to 
blame, the deficit is the most important thing. And people didn't really think that in the 80s, did they? They blamed Thatcher. They didn't yes. blame Callaghan or Wilson. They blamed Thatcher. But now it seems the blame is going retrospectively well, they did, they back did, to Labour. They did blame Callaghan. There was all of the, you know, winter of discontent and the mythology that built up around bodies unburied and all of that. So they did the same trick then, really, that if it, it was Labour who'd crashed the whole society and we've got to pick up the pieces. This, of course, is much worse in the 1980s. We think it was bad then. This is worse. These are deeper cuts than anything since the last war. It's incredible. £81 billion taken out of all of social services. £18 billion taken out of welfare uh, from, you know, all the poorest areas and the poorest people. I don't think it's sunk in yet, partly because some of it doesn't happen till April. I don't think it's begun to sink in yet, the social deficit that's going to be created. What what Polly's saying there, that we we haven't yet even begun to feel what's what's coming. What are you hearing? There's still a tiny bit of a phony war, isn't there, where people are going, actually, is it not quite that bad yet? You know, Barnsley said they were going to shut eight libraries, now they're only going to shut three. So you think, oh, that's not quite so bad. But then... For myself, I'm getting less work. Art centres are shutting down. People aren't booking my band and things like that. They're saying, can you come for a split of the door where before they'd have paid you a fee? Interestingly, I go into my grandson's school to read poems. If I try and go into another school and try and charge them money, they say, well, can't you volunteer? Can't be part of the big society? Or somehow, yes, I can see just over the hill. They start maybe September is when none of us got any work, and then it'll all start to kick in. That's a, a nightmare prospect. The big society becomes an excuse not to pay people. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I think that. Well, I think that's evident anyway. I think mm. it's a big society combined with the internet is a, is absolutely a reason for you know you mostly get asked to can you do it for free. I mean, I find myself there is a kind of sense, a grimness. It's interesting that atmosphere. I think because when the Labour are in and we were all supposedly you know. You know, wallowing in house prizes and credit cards and everything was great, that it's gone so quickly, that, that kind of atmosphere. I don't know if it's because maybe television always tries to uh, reflect what's going mm. on in society, but the general kind of atmosphere, that's the bit that kind of reminds me of the late 70s and real. 80s. That it's kind real. of You know, the recession has been real, and every single organisation of any kind knows that it's got to cut its budget hugely already. So, of course, they're asking everybody to do everything for free. People <laughs> with a bit of money can do things for free. Whereas people with no money can't. So when they ring me up and say, came to that for nothing, I think, well, that's all right, because I've just done this job over here that paid me some money, so I can do that one for nothing. But a lot of people have been asked to do things for nothing who've got no money. Does this mean that Ed Miliband and Labour have a very easy hand to play here? All they have to do as the cuts start to bite is just voice people's discontent. For the moment, yes, I do think so. I think it's extraordinary that from Labour's crashing defeat, they're already maybe six, seven points ahead. It doesn't mean they'll win the election if there was one tomorrow, because underneath that, when people are asked, who do you really think is best to run the economy? I'm afraid they still say uh, the Conservatives. And since we're talking about the 80s, Neil Kinnock was always in, in front thing. in the polls Neil and Kinnock then lost was the ahead. So they have to do one more thing. They have to provide a credible economic story. They have to say, this is how we would do it more through growth than through cuts. Uh, this is why the cuts are going to be much more destructive economically. I think as people see it happening around them over the next year, they're going to be listening to alternative economic stories. And the idea that it's just deficit, 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 there'll be more voices. After all, a hell of a lot of, a lot of economists, um, you know, Martin Wolf and others in the Financial Times, people not of the left, are saying this is economically catastrophic and ideological and you shouldn't do it. I think that voice will be heard more and more. Do you wonder if they need to come up with a simple phrase like the big society? 
that will help us oh, as a piece of shorter. they produce one? They need one. They do need one, and that is, <laughs> they must be thinking of one, because that's what you need, isn't it? A phrase like the big society that actually is the opposite of the big society because it can't be tarnished. You'll you provide the words for free, won't you? Of course I will. I do everything for free. <laughs> <laughs> Ian McMillan with that Big Society Thought. Thank you. Also thanks to Polly Toynbee and Miranda Sawyer. And I think a special thank you must go to Miranda's daughter, Frankie, showing us the views of the next generation. You'll find links to everything we've discussed at guardian.co.uk slash week in review. Our producer was Ian Chambers. I'm Jonathan Friedland. See you next time. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.